0: Welcome to The New Disruptors. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. This interview with the Dr. Demento director should be a marvelous hit, but if anything goes wrong with the Skyping, I'll wind up in a big pile of shaving cream. Be nice and clean, shave every day, and you'll always look keen. Hello. Hello, Devin. I'm talking today with Devin Lucas. He's a writer and director from Southern California. He's made plenty of movies in the past, but nothing quite like the upcoming film Under the Smogberry Trees, the true story of Dr. Demento and Mr. Hansen. He's part of Meep Morp Studio with Christine McDonald and Scott McKenzie, and he joins us today. Devin, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Oh, well, thanks for having me on, Glenn.
0: It's a pleasure. I'm a lifelong Dr. Demento fan, and I'm gathering that you too are uh, a longtime fan as well.
1: Oh yeah, I've, I've been a fan since I was a kid. So I used to listen to the live show. Uh, all three of us did actually uh, on Met and KLSX. We were lucky enough to live in the LA area,
0: so we got the live show instead of the syndicated. Because he used to send those out. If I remember right, it was he sent them out on records at one point, didn't he? To, to record stations. For a long time, yeah,
1: he had a deal with uh, Westwood One. They were syndicating for him, and they were one of the, uh, if not the first, uh, syndicator that actually had its own record pressing plant.
0: That seems so long ago because I mean, even when he he was doing that beyond the point, not that it made sense, but like that was that was the way the shows used to be syndicated. But if I remember right, he did it quite into the the era of carts and tapes and things like that.
1: Yeah, he did. He did eventually go on to CDs and then uh, on to recordable CDs and just like uh, all other syndication did. But he, it did seem like he uh, stuck to the records for a little longer than most people
0: did. It's pretty sweet. I bet those are sort of valuable collector's items for people in the know who who uh, go and raid radio stations or, hey, ah, you don't really want these, do you? That's just taking up space, right? Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, um, they go on eBay for a pretty good dollar and uh, – I guess the official thing I'm supposed to say is, well, those were supposed to be sent back to the syndicator, but I, I would love to get my hands on a couple of them.
0: It's like the uh, Oscars. I think you're not supposed – you don't actually own an Oscar. You just possess it. You're not supposed to be allowed to sell it because it's belongs to the Academy.
1: Well, achievements in Hollywood are always on rent. It's, it's always – it's never
0: permanent. That's perfect. Well, you know, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, and um, one of my uh, friends from theater – there, when I was in high school, um, she was a huge. She, she'd moved from, I think, maybe from LA, and she lobbied and lobbied and lobbied, and finally got a radio station to pick them up. And then I understood what all the glory was about, and used to listen. You know, I forget they aired it maybe late at night at ten o'clock or something, and I'd I would listen, and pull out my little cassette tape and taped it for years. Uh, was was you were hearing it live? Were you trying to tape it? Did you pass around tapes with fellow fans of shows you'd missed?
1: Oh, yeah. No, I, I taped it and, and uh, beat the hell out of those tapes on The Rewind, too. Uh, it, was, uh, it, was, uh, it went on all week. He was live for two hours uh, once a week, but the Dr. Demento show played in my house all the time on
0: tape. That's great. It's the Prairie Home Companion for some people, Dr. Demento for others. Yes, and both uh, him and uh, Keeler are both from Minnesota. Oh, that's funny. Well, aren't all talk show hosts from Indiana? I, I think da, that's the breakdown. Is that Johnny Carson, David Letterman, and maybe I don't know if Jack Parr? Jack Parr was born in, a, in a, an ashtray somewhere, so I don't think that's, that's right. possible. Uh, but yeah, Doctor Demento had that. There's that voice, that way of talking that doesn't tie you to a specific place. It's not a Brooklyn accent. It's not a California surfer accent. You can't place where it is, but it speaks to everybody. It's from
1: the land of dementia. That's that's his <laughs> accent. It's it's the it's the perfect voice for his show.
0: He's. It, just adds to the uniqueness. Well, you know, I uh, I don't want you to speak for him. I realize this is a common problem. In fact, when I contacted you for the interview, you said, you don't want to talk to him, right? You want to talk to me? I'm like, no, I want to talk to you guys because you're building the film and working with, with him. He's, you've got his participation. But uh, but I would say as a as a fan and a longtime listener, I don't know anything about – about Barrett Hansen, the man behind who, – who is Dr. Demento on the air. He has a private life. How hard was it for you to convince him to get involved in a in autobiography in a project like this?
1: Well, he would had several offers through the years and uh, he uh, saw something in us and his manager and his wife also saw something in us that uh, I think they, they felt – The trust was there and uh that we weren't looking to exploit anything or do any kind of a scandal picture or anything like that i I think that he saw this as a way that he could work creatively with us i don't i don't know exactly what the other deals were but we certainly came to him with with uh, complete openness in terms of getting his input and his feedback and and kind of giving him final cut,
0: so to speak Oh, that's great. So this is, this is going to be a collaboration in part as, as he's involved, but you're going to shape this with his input.
1: I, I think it's become even more collaborative than he expected from the beginning, uh, a lot due to the Kickstarter impact.
0: Yeah, I, I was going to ask if you would thought about other kinds of funding because Dr. Demento has a decent fan base. This is kind of a classic independent film where uh, someone who funds this kind of thing might think, you know, this could have a lot of appeal in film festivals. It could win awards. It'll have a huge DVD life. Did you think about trying to do the conventional route and, and just get the money or was Kickstarter always in the front of your mind about how to proceed? for the start
1: kickstarter was always kind of there it was something i mean when when this project had its uh, inception uh, dr Demento wasn't involved yet and we were just uh, three artists trying to put together something that we wanted to do and so kickstarter was was kind of naturally where our minds went because we didn't have any other resources for that kind of money uh, yeah. and in fact as kickstarter was going on uh, there's a good chance that if it had been somebody else's project we wouldn't have been able to afford to donate to it uh so uh, it's been really helpful to get the Kickstarter money, and the fans have really spoken up and, and let their love be shown. Uh, but we're, we're certainly looking for alternate forms of financing uh, even still. So the, the Kickstarter was really just the startup.
0: It gets you, um, it gets you the way, uh, part of the way there to uh, – because you've got a lot of location shooting. You've got time you have to devote. Um, this doesn't get you this, – this funding, in other words, doesn't get you to the finished film.
1: No, I mean, the uh, the licensing rights for the music we want to play might end up being uh, an, an entire doubling of the budget on its own.
0: This is an interesting thing. I'll, I'll be talking in the future to Dave Kellett and uh, Fred Schroeder, who uh, are behind the movie Stripped. And as you probably know, they, uh, I just saw them, as we record this, just a few days ago at the XOXO Festival in Portland, where they were showing some uh, advance uh, cuts of their uh, their film. And they went to Kickstarter twice. And the first time was for the initial funding. And the second was a uh, clearance budget. They had that same issue. They had a bunch of uh, film that they couldn't get donated. They got a ton of stuff donated from cartoonists. But um seems like you're in a, a more difficult position because the music rights industry, the artists don't have – I mean almost none of the artists have the right to let you have stuff, I would think, of the stuff that you want to use.
1: Well, we're fortunate on two counts. Uh, On the one hand, uh, the artists who do happen to own their own music, which covers most of the contemporary uh, stars of Dr. Demento and and several of the uh, past stars, uh, they've been very generous with us about being able to use their stuff. And then uh, there's so much, that, uh, especially in his earlier years, that Dr. Demento played that uh, would fall more under public domain or, or be a little more affordable. So uh, we, we've, we've got some of the soundtrack covered already, but there, there really is going to be a point where uh, things are going to start to
0: add up. And uh, you, you mentioned uh, somewhere in the, in the background of uh, this film that, that Mr. Hansen was uh, – his background is actually in folk uh, – sort of a historian, folk music, classical music. Does that show through in the music that he picked and that you're uh, – or some of the music, as you say, that would fall in the public domain that he picked and played and that you'll be including in the film?
1: Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that Dr. Demento has always done is kind of subversively slip in a history lesson with his uh, with his show. He started off not even necessarily trying to focus on funny music, and uh, most of his playlist was stuff that you just wouldn't hear anywhere else on the radio, stuff that had been forgotten or lost through time. And uh, I think that's the stuff – again, I'm not speaking for him, but I, I think a lot of that's the stuff that he really enjoyed playing as well. And so uh,
0: being that this is his story, uh, there's going to be a, a pretty considerable emphasis on a lot of the old music. Well, I'll have to say I heard I'm My Own Grandpa for the first time on his show, of course. Of course. Yeah, so that's where you learn about time travel or uh, <laughs> or um, relations between families That intermarry. Uh Coming up with a budget for a film – now, I know uh, your studio has worked uh, on a number of films, but you say this is going to be one of the first uh, uh, full-length things that you put together yourself. How did you sort out – I'm always fascinated by the budgeting part, like the cost that would be involved to pull off this. I mean, you're literally like a lot of people kickstarting. You're you're taking the money to do the hard upfront work where there's a lot of you know high cost. How did you budget to make uh, to make that possible? Figure out what you needed before going to folks.
1: Uh, really just doing your research beforehand uh, helps a lot, uh, kind of having an idea, maybe you don't have an exact number for what something's going to cost, but you know you can poke around a couple of places online or talk to a few people on the phone and start to get a general idea of what that's going to be. And uh, that was really what a lot of the research was prior to Kickstarter, and since Kickstarter it's been more about the story itself and, and getting to know Barry and, and talking to him and getting his interviews down.
0: Before you started, I, I think you you mentioned in uh, somewhere that you you guys had done a fair amount of background research and preparation. You didn't go to either to Dr. Dementa or to uh, Kickstarter uh, backers and say, uh, we have this idea, but we don't have much to show for it. It sounds like you really did your research was that a, was that a plan or did that just feel, did that feel like it was necessary to come with material in hand to tell people we actually know what the story is going to be?
1: Well, we wanted to make sure that everybody had confidence in us. We've, we've got our, our star, obviously. We've got Dr. Demento, and we can uh, ride that quite a bit in terms of, of getting uh, money from fans. But we're not just selling Dr. Demento. We're trying to sell our, our own filmmaking skills. And really showing them what we had already was, was the best way we could think of to, to make them feel confident in giving, them, uh, giving us uh, their hard-earned bucks to make something like this.
0: And I'll say it's a really interesting thing. And I've, I mean, we've seen this now a few times with films on Kickstarter. I mentioned Stripped, which is getting, you know, they've, I forget when they're completing, but they're getting there. They now, they're over the hump and, and they're coming into the home stretch, I think. That'll be a, a, a great film about uh, comic strips, sort of past and the future of it. Uh, indie Game, the movie, I just saw the filmmakers behind that who spoke at XOXO in 2012 and they were attending this year's Show, they just finished like a four year journey where they delivered the deluxe set after delivering the original movie last year. Neither of those groups, uh, neither the, the folks who had stripped or Indie Game or, or Linotype, the movie, which is one of the early uh, multiple funded Kickstarters, they had not made uh, feature length films before. The Indie Game folks did commercial work. Um, the Linotype people had not made a film. They had done little bits and pieces, weren't in the industry like you are. It seems like there's a lot of trust at Kickstarter that if you can show people something, they believe that you might be able to make a, a, a film. Did you feel that trust coming from backers when you were running the campaign? Uh, We always felt support from the backers. It was just uh, a
1: fear at some point that there weren't going to be enough of them. Uh, The backers have always been great. Uh, Getting the backers was was the part that gave us a couple gray hairs. But uh, everybody kind of hits a a low point about a week or two into their Kickstarter, if they're not the front (laughs) month, uh, where you just you don't feel like you're going to make it, and you got to give yourself pep talks in the morning and. It really is twenty four seven work. Being able to be up and answer people's questions, um, you never know if if you don't get to somebody within ten minutes of them emailing you, they might be putting their wallet away. It's it's a lot of work, and and the best way to kind of get things together uh, to that capacity is is to know that you have a lot of people who are already fans of yours that
0: are um, that are showing your support. You know, you you, you don't feel alone necessarily on Kickstarter. Well, that's a wonderful way to think about it too. And but I think talking to Kickstarter, I have an interview with one of the co-founders that just went up uh, shortly before we're talking. And he talked about, you know, you have to bring a community with you because that's the way to really be successful. But they're seeing more and more of a network effect too. So there's a backer – their top backer I think has backed 960 projects which is great. He's an outlier. But there's tons of people who back multiple projects and they find one thing and then Kickstarter, if you're lucky enough, they, maybe they feature you or uh, I'm looking at your page and you had almost 12,000 Facebook shares of this project and you had almost you had almost 1,800 backers. So people found it or whatever methods you used to communicate it, but they, they spread it. People wanted this to happen. Absolutely. And, okay. and that,
1: that's where having Dr. Demento really came in handy. <laughs> Uh there's a lot of love out there for him and uh a lot of high profile people really stepped up to to let people know, hey, I really love this guy, let's let's get a movie. And uh the most common thing we heard throughout the entire process was it's about time somebody did something like this, which is really our, our biggest indicator that we were going in the right direction. So I think it did carry a lot on the fact that there there is a, a fan base that's been largely ignored of Doctor Demento fans. Uh, over the years. And then here, here we were um, giving them exactly what they've been hoping for.
0: This seems like the uh, the common subculture phenomenon that people get disregarded, in the past at least, because it was hard to find the community to do things. And now you have Comic-Con and PAX Prime for Gamers and all these huge things in which people celebrate some aspect of their geekery or obsession that's outside of what used to be considered mainstream culture. Dr. Domeno, do you think he's outside of mainstream culture now? It doesn't feel quite like that to me
1: i i think he is a little outside of mainstream culture there's always been a part of him that's been subversive and it's it's interesting especially now that we're going back and we have access to all the archives of of the old shows dating back to 1970 uh, you you can hear him kind of going from a little edgier to a little a little more family friendly over the years but he still walks that line the entire time and and i think
0: that that alone is <laughs> is uh,
1: not mainstream
0: I have a friend who I think his greatest achievement in life was. I I believe he got uh, I believe he got a song on the show, and he's now a, he became a programmer and a writer. Now he's doing ad sales, and he was you know that was like the best moment in his life. It, it's always seemed to me that Doctor Demetrio has opened himself up to outside people. I wonder if that's part of the fan appeal. Is that as a fan you knew that he wasn't just finding stuff that, that was out there that he was accepting submissions and and calling through it. Do you think that Adds to his or added to his appeal.
1: Oh yeah, uh, he he's still the uh, the most open avenue to uh, to take. If you want to get into comedy uh, and you're any good, you're you're guaranteed to get Doctor Demento to at least listen to you and and possibly put you on the show. Uh, and, and there's not really that opportunity anywhere else in the comedy business. Uh, you, you know, you might uh, get a, a nightclub gig or something like that, but this is this is a show that's heard around the country so uh it's it's a nice step up and I, I think that people have always connected with barry in that sense uh he's dr demento has always made uh an effort to mention names on requests and i uh, pay so much attention to his his top 10 uh most requested songs of the month he dedicates an entire show to the most requests uh every month so he he does keep connected with his fans in that way even if he's not you know meet and greet right in person
0: that's true. I remember the the funny five. I mean, back in the days before email, I might have had a modem back then or something. I don't know who I was talking to with that modem uh, <laughs> in the nineteen eighties. But yeah, the the funny five—that it was the top five songs that he was listening to. People's uh, obviously sending them, you know, phone calls to request lines and sending snail mail letters, and he paid attention.
1: Yeah, and then there was oftentimes a different list for uh, the the. Top requests for the live show from uh, being different from the uh, top requests for the
0: syndicated show, so he, he was kind of juggling all of that. The thing, of course, I'm curious about is how much archival footage uh, have you been able to, to get either from him or or have tracked down from other people of these performances since he dates back so many decades. I, I would think there'd be film and video and and more.
1: There's quite a bit. Uh, again, that a lot of it is is falling into the. Uh, the licensing because some of it's from mtv and and comedy central and the today show at his peak he really was doing a lot of television appearances and as far as the the radio archives go he's he's managed to get almost his entire life's work together wow uh some of it is stuff that he has kept over the years and some of it is stuff that uh his fans have sent in you know episodes that that just weren't recorded otherwise some of the stuff you listen to on drdemento.com where he he uh, posts all this stuff uh is literally
0: taken off of the the same cassette tapes that we all grew up recording that makes me want to go and find mine and see if there's anything missing but i think i think my cassette tapes got went bad a long time ago sadly so <laughs> that's right. That's why. Yes, that's the problem with digital media, I think, is actually too good. I want to hear some of the scratches. I want the tapes to break and I have to go figure out how to fix them. You know, that's that's part of the charm. The, now, I know in the plans for the film, the way you talk about this, this isn't just. Uh, I mean, I guess there's two parts we should talk about. One is uh, beyond. Uh, Bear Hansen, uh, who's participating so heavily and discussing his own life and his work, one part is all these musicians, these folks whose work was featured, whose careers he helped made, you've already got – when the Kickstarter ended, you'd already listed a number of people, including uh, the folks behind Fish Heads and, um, and so forth who are – some of the songs people know – the best. Do you have uh, the one that I, I sing this to my children and it drives them crazy is, is they're coming to take me away. Ha ha coming <laughs> to take me away. Ho ho. And um, uh, I can't remember the story behind that guy. Is he still alive even?
1: Yeah. His name's Jerry Samuels, although he went by Napoleon the 14th for that. Uh, yes. Uh, and he, uh, last I've heard, he's still living in Philly. He's definitely still alive. And uh, he was a, a talent agent. Um, and uh, we've, <laughs> we've been trying to contact him. And, and uh, I
0: think we just haven't found the, the right door to knock on yet. We're hoping to get him in the movie. If any listener knows him, please knock on his door. This is the wonderful power. I mean, I don't have enough listeners, but you never know. It's the word of mouth thing. I know there are listeners in Philly because he obviously he's got one of the most memorable songs from, from that period. And that got on like a mainstream novelty record play, too. There was that interesting point where you had crossover, wasn't there, between the kind of stuff Dr. Demento would play. He might discuss. It or he might have been the only one playing it for years, and then some of that stuff would slip into novelty mainstream play or show up in you know radio comedy. Did you see? A, is there a back and forth of that kind of thing that he seemed to always discover it before it became something that anyone else would listen to? Uh,
1: well, there, there is a lot of that where he's discovering things first. He was even the uh, the first person to grant a radio interview to the band Devo. So oh my God. <laughs> anything that was that was really uh, outsider music. He, he's uh, he's sought it out he's found it and uh, I, I can't say that he's the first to play Devo but he's, he was kind of the first to give him attention and uh, there's there's several artists that are like that and um, there there was kind of a, a shift musically uh, right around the time that he started his show. The novelty 45 was just kind of ending as an industry. Uh, about five or six years before he got his show, mm-hmm. uh, as like you said, there was crossover stuff like "They're Coming to Take Me Away," haha, ha, uh, which which they did score top records with, and they were usually a single, and it, very few of them uh, had albums that were as good as some of those singles, to be honest. Uh, but you know, you had that early period of the Monster Mash and and Flying Purple People Eater, and They're Coming to <laughs> Take Me Away, and Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini and and the songs were really accepted in jukeboxes and and uh and and bought and then it kind of died off when when rock changed and everything got to be about putting out the album and not just the single and uh rock got very serious and then he happened to start his show right around the time that rock was very serious and started to replay some of these 45s that came from the decades previous and and that was I think, refreshing to a lot of the listeners in Los Angeles who maybe hadn't heard these in a long time, hadn't thought about them in a long time.
0: You know, I don't think I ever thought about it that way, and I think you've been talking about it all along too. Is that the show is a bit of an oldies show, or it started? I mean, I know he put new material on, but from that perspective, it was uh, it was like a playing your great novelty hits from the you know twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies, as well as new material.
1: If you listen to the early years, he he actually opened several several episodes by saying, "This is
0: uh, where I play oldies for people who don't like oldies." <laughs> that's that's fantastic, and I uh, know of course it's. Ex- Extremely well known that Weird Al Yankovic got his start by um, as a kid, really being played on Dr. Domeno's show, and that helped him break out and become this really a recording star. I mean, he's kind of up there. tier wise, he's an incredible Twitter presence. Um, now, I don't, I know, I don't want to ask too much about this kind of thing because I don't want to say, you know, did you get him? Did you not get him? But are you you're hoping to get him for this film? I assume you don't mention him on the Kickstarter, but I know that he probably has uh, a lot of feelings about you know his time and, and what he's involved with as well.
1: Uh, yeah, Al is, uh, somebody that we definitely want to be in the movie. We haven't talked to him yet. We know that he's, he's been on tour and he's, he's a busy guy, uh, basically. And we certainly want him to be in the film. We hope that he's going to be a big part because he's not just a part of the Dr. Demento show. He's really part of Barry Hanson's life. They're, they're good friends on top of, you know, the, the mentor protege, uh, relationship that everyone else knows about. So, uh,
0: I guess I can say we plan on having Weird Al on board. There's just nothing to report yet. That'll that'll be great. I mean, he's I, you know, of all the people I know from that from listening to uh, the Doctor Domenico show, it's Weird Al. I think is he's so incredibly talented, but he's chosen this course in life. You know, like P.D.Q. Bach, uh, Peter Shickley, It was always a fascinating thing. The guy who's a classical composer, and I've heard. I mean, he performs sometimes his own. Um, Compositions and he's very good, but it's uh, it's interesting when someone dons that, like Doctor, like like Barrett Hansen did, like Peter Shickley like Al Yankovic, that they say this is the persona that I want to do in life, even though I could do something else that was much more serious.
1: Oh, and we're running into a lot of personas in the making of this film. It's it's very <laughs> interesting to see. You know, these people have have done these amazing things with their lives with uh, characters that I'm sure their relatives all thought were just a goofy waste of time at the beginning. <laughs>
0: I just discovered that um, uh, the TV series Space, you know Simon Pegg and his colleagues there that made that in uh, England, there's a character in it that apparently uh, this is where you find out how these things go. Comedians are always creating characters. Sometimes one of them sticks, like Pee-wee Herman, and one of the characters in Space, the guy uh, plays Mike. He was always doing this character, and he's like, "Look, we need to put it in the TV show," and then it became one of the most memorable parts of the show. I, I wonder, do people, uh, you know, you you've talked a lot with with Barrett. I wonder if people you talk to, if they find themselves pigeonholed once they've taken on the persona and can't get out of it.
1: I'm, I'm sure there's moments of that, but of uh, the people that we've talked to, uh, they seem to to love everything about it. You know, they, they feel fortunate that they've been able to make this kind of a living of doing something that's just uh, fun for them and a lot of hard work, but a lot of fun. Uh, Pee Wee Herman in particular uh, Paul Rubens uh, was a big help on the Kickstarter even gave me a phone call at one point uh, to ask if he could do anything else to help that is so nice he, he was fantastic it was a surprising wake up call one day <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're like yeah yeah do the voice I want to make sure it's really you no,
1: <laughs> that's, But I, uh, I
0: think people who, who have that kind of
1: uh, persona style are, are the types who gravitate towards Barry and Dr. Demento to begin with
0: yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's funny because I think about that from the performance thing is that, is that to pull off, this is, I think, I don't know if Lewis Carroll said this, but there's that issue about nonsense only works when you believe in it, when it's rigidly consistent nonsense. If you crack, like mugging doesn't work in nonsense. You can't pull it off. You have to be, and Weird Al, as a good example, is he has that, he performs those songs and that's where he's at. That's, and so did, and, and Barry, Barry is Dr. Demento.
1: Yeah. He, he shouldn't have to wink at the audience to, to prove his point.
0: Yeah. That makes it sort of what do you call it? Camp as opposed to actually like farce or actually worthwhile. Uh, so the other part I was going to say, so the one part of this is you've got, you'll be talking to a lot of the, you've already got a bunch of people committed. You'll be obviously with the budget, you'll be talking to as many more as you can from, uh, uh who wrote songs and, uh, Performed. I know that Dr. Demento also interviewed a ton of people. I remember a memorable interview with the Bobs, for instance, uh, that he did. And the other part of that, though, is the fans, the Dementites. Uh, you mentioned really clearly that part of your goal was to raise the money. You're in L.A. or the L.A. area. You can reach a lot of people you need to there. That's where, where uh, Barrett is and so forth. But you want to go off and you want to find the Dementites – this is always that Star Trek cast versus Trekkies or Trekkers kind of thing. Where do the Dementites fit into this universe, and how do you want to have them participate in the film? Well,
1: the nothing is, is completely set in stone as of yet, so I don't want to go too much into detail. But we, we have been invited to participate in a couple of conventions, uh, Ooh. fan conventions in the uh, middle part of next year. And I know a lot of our backers are going to be there and we're looking forward to meeting them and, and we're taking our cameras, of course, and uh, I'm hoping we can get a lot of the fan reaction right there on the convention floor where uh, they're going to be at the peak of excitement and, uh, you know, d- dressed in their, their finest, whatever that may be, and uh, we're, we're going to definitely make them a part of the film. We've also got lots of uh, celebrity Demento superfans, we call them, people who uh, maybe. Are not necessarily closely associated with the show, but who have made it very well known that they're Demento fans.
0: This, uh, Forgive me, I'm going to sound naïve, are there actually Dr. Demento specific conventions or are they part of bigger conventions?
1: Uh, Nobody has actually done a Dr. Demento convention, who knows, maybe after this comes out, <laughs> <laughs> something like that can start. There, there are uh, comedy music conventions. Uh, the, I, I don't suppose I'm giving too much away here because the conventions themselves are already announced, but the MarsCon every year in uh, Minnesota, they, they have a demented track to their, um, their convention every year, and then that usually has a lot of uh, demented uh, performers and things like that. And this year, for the first time, the Funny Music Project is throwing their own uh, convention. That'll be in June in Chicago. And uh, Dr. Demento is actually going to be the guest of honor for that. And uh, that's a, a whole collective of some of Dr. Demento's current top 10 stars who, who are running a little bit of business on the internet with com, so that they can uh, get a little payment for their hard work. And uh, this convention is going to be there
0: first. It should be exciting. That's really fun. I, c- I can imagine. I've been to a lot of you know industry-specific ones, and I recently dropped in at uh – at the PAX Prime uh, Gaming Convention in Seattle, which is 70,000 people, by the way. It's a little overwhelming. It takes over most of downtown Seattle while it's going on. It's fascinating where people who have the same affinity for something can discover each other. And this is, you know, the Internet makes possible a lot of things, but finding people who like – what you like has never been easier, and I'm—I guess I shouldn't be surprised. There are funny music conventions, but it's kind of cool that there's going to be two of them now, even or more. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I, so I'm always fascinated by uh, the—we talked about budget earlier about the way you build. A campaign, and you had a successful campaign. You you know you were looking for hundred thousand dollars. You raised one hundred nineteen thousand dollars. That's above it's above average. You know, a you succeeded, which puts you in uh, you know a nice uh, I think sixty percent of campaigns succeed, and then and B you you exceeded by a comfortable margin. So you're up in the you know eightieth ninetieth percentile of Kickstarter campaigns. You know the the outliers are the ones that do ridiculously well that raise you know ten times hundred times, but a lot of campaigns raise just above the amount and. You have a ton of rewards. Now, Kickstarter usually advises, to keep it simple, don't have a ton of rewards. It confuses people. You guys were – I mean, this is a very Dementite thing, I think, too, is that it seemed like you knew your fans – the fans of Dr. Demento, the people most likely to contribute, would be very interested in the rewards. Can you tell me something about how you guys came up with – I mean, there's two huge graphics on your Kickstarter page of all the different le- levels and options and so forth. A, how did you come up with this? And B, how are you going to manage fulfilling all this? <laughs> well,
1: fulfilling, it's been kind of uh, fun. It's, it's been a little bit more time-consuming than we anticipated, but it's, it's only to get the quality work out. Uh, the thing with Dr. Demento is that, uh, like we've said before, you have this built-in fan base. And aside from the fan club... Uh, that ran for, that's, that was still running for, for several decades. There really hasn't been much of a marketing blitz for Dr. Demento as far as merchandising. Oh, and we I saw see. this as an opportunity to, uh, you know, wh- why hasn't there been a Dr. Demento whoopee cushion, you know? Uh, <laughs> things like that. Uh, we thought these are things that the fans would really appreciate having, and, and we would feel honored to be the ones to uh, get to design them and, and, and manufacture
0: them. So so there's like a matrix here I see is that you can contribute at all these different levels. Like I could contribute at the uh, $30 full-color official theatrical release poster level, but then I could add a kazoo, a whoopee cushion, and a Blu-ray on top of that. Uh, Kickstarter is not usually designed well to do that. I mean you can give more money than the level you're at. You can back at $30 and and put $100 in the pot. How did you make the system work for you so that you could let people track – the extras they were going to do. Did you do that when they pledged, or did you have to do that as part of the follow-up questionnaire?
1: Uh, well, we we did it really as part of the follow-up questionnaire, uh, and a lot of people were real helpful in in terms of just uh, writing straight to us and saying, "I just donated an extra couple of bucks. Can you put me down for this or that?" That was actually a complete and total surprise to us when we started our <laughs> Kickstarter. We didn't know that you couldn't choose more than uh one reward you you have to stick with the one reward as far as Kickstarter rules and uh, we we found out we weren't breaking any rules by coming up with the add-ons and so we we kind of had to come up with that on the cuff to make sure that everybody got what they wanted and that was really the the ambition was to make sure that everybody got what they wanted uh, we obviously want more money but uh, we we didn't like the idea that somebody would want two things and not be able to have them uh, especially since the Kickstarter items, many of them are so unique, uh, and, and many of them will not be available anywhere else. By the way, some of them are still available if anyone wants to contact us at info at smogberrytrees.com. Uh, we, we can still take uh, PayPal donations for a number of the uh, reward
0: items. Oh, that's great. Are you still doing pre- like essentially at this point pre-orders for the film then too, or is it just the uh, novelty or t-shirt items?
1: Uh, we're, we're actually doing both. Oh, that's great. So pre-orders for the film will will be a part of that. Uh, we're we're right now we we're still uh, we're focused on the t-shirts and the um, uh, the interview CDs, which is an, an exclusive that we have. Nobody else is going to have this documentary interview CD. Uh, some of the more limited quantity items
0: are gone. Things like the uh, the box set is gone. That's a pretty crazy thing. I'm looking at that, and that was was that a five hundred dollar level pledge? Five hundred dollar donation. Yeah. A donation, I should say. And then that's uh, – because that's a 17-disc box set. Now, if you're a Dr. Domeno fan, that's sort of crazy. Like that's you – know, that's, that's a couple years worth of listening possibly there. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. Well, so the uh, – it's fascinating to me. It's very interesting to me that, that you were able to manage this. It sounds like a lot of people, when they get into this level of complexity, this is the thing that they complain most about in the Kickstarter campaign. They love getting the backing. They love working with people and so forth. But – uh, and I realize you still got a lot of this stuff to fulfill, but it sounds like this worked out. Like you're happy now, having had all these levels and all these add-ons that that you feel like that was a good decision to have made.
1: Well, each one of these things just boosts our confidence when it's done, too. You know, uh, we're we're really proud of the shirts that we've made and and the CDs we put together and and uh, all the various
0: things, the stickers and the postcards. It's it's examples of of our work to come as well. Well, that's really interesting, but and also now you know there's this distribution thing that goes way back with Kickstarter. I had Craig Maud on the program several months ago, and he is kind of a publishing guru. He's figured out a lot of really interesting electronic and print publishing stuff in two thousand and ten He wrote this post about how he'd done a big fundraiser, one of the biggest early publishing uh, Kickstarters. And it was this distribution of where people pledged at what level. And they had some super premium stuff in the hundreds. And then they had $25 stuff and $10 stuff. What's funny to me is that it still holds true. We're four and a half years into this thing. You can raise $10,000, a hundred thousand or a million. And I'm looking at the distribution here. If you hadn't done that box set, you had 38 people pledge at least $500 that box set, that's a significant percentage of the money you raised. Absolutely. If you hadn't done that, you know, or $250 level, you had 10 backers. It it seems like you obviously thought about this, but what was the distribution? Did the high-end stuff, the things that like $500 or more wind up being, uh, you know, as much money brought in as the stuff that was under $500? You have a point, I don't know if you ran the numbers on that because that's not always that interesting either, but was there a point where you said this was the break point, like $250 or more? pledges were actually half the kickstarter
1: uh well i mean that was that was uh just the planning and having a lot of good exclusive rewards we 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 got a lot off of the small rewards as well uh we got a lot more off the kazoos than we thought we would (laughs) and and every single piece regardless of uh what the cost was got the same level of attention so we knew we could deliver on quality on all of them and and a lot of the the bigger priced items uh they were really just kind of um, they were icing on the cake to a certain extent, uh, some of them we didn 't even know we were going to have because we were we were coming up with ideas as the Kickstarter was going on and uh, with the box set, for example, uh, Dr. Demento came to us and said, "I have about fifty complete copies <laughs> uh, sets of my uh, basement tapes, which uh, used to do, or still do go out with the fan club uh, every year he 'd put out a, a different basement tape just for the fan club and he 'd done seventeen of these." And we thought, well, we can put together a box set with that. And, and on top of that, even at $500, it's a lot of money. But if you're going to go out and actually sell these individual CDs, you'd get over a grand for them on eBay because individually they go for so much because they're they're printed at home and, and never circulated outside of the fan club.
0: Oh, that's great. So these are actually, you're offering essentially like private, from his, from his seller, private collector's items.
1: They're actually basement tapes from his basement, yes, and uh, these are the authentic, uh, I guess some of them you could even call antiques, they're about 20 years old now. Uh, these are not reproductions of the CDs he sent out in 1993. This is what's left over of the CDs that he sent out in 1993.
0: Oh, that's that's fabulous. I mean, his participation obviously invaluable to make this happen on, on one end. But I, I wanted to ask about the very high end things too. Is that he made himself available for some of your you know really high end things like you know when we talk about you had raised almost you know over 100 and was eighteen thousand dollars. Or almost that much money. Uh, you have a ten thousand dollar pledge that someone backed. You have a five thousand dollar pledge that someone backed. You've got several thousand dollar things. That's that's oh, about ten percent of the money you raised came from. And essentially, the entire overage above your hundred grand goal came from things that uh, really involve uh, you know some participation. I guess the thousand dollar ones not so much, but the fi- the, the um, guided tour through the land of dementia with Doctor Demento driving you around, and the ten thousand dollar. Uh, one where you get access to video chat, you can be executive producer on the film. I mean, these are things that are that are over and above. It seems like uh, in order, to, it, 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 these were good things for you to have to stretch, and some people did stretch.
1: Yeah, the, the stretching helped. What their purpose really served, as far as the timing of the whole thing, was that when people started to step up and and uh, buy some of those higher end rewards. Was when other people—it was before we hit our goal—and other people were saying, "Okay, people are starting to put their money where their mouth is. I think I should get on board with this." And I'm sure there were a lot of people who just thought we were so damn close and didn't want to see us lose it. (laughs) Uh, But you know, certainly ten grand is a nice jump on your totals for the day. When someone uh, logs in the night before and says, "Oh, they're not doing too well," and then the next day they log on and we're ten thousand
0: higher. Uh, suddenly that adds to their trust. Well, oh, that's great. You know, and I, I don't remember when I came into this, I know I pledged at some point and I saw it and I'm like, well, I'm going to watch the film and I'll probably buy it later. So I can either give them $20 now and help them make it or I'm going to give Apple 15 on iTunes or 20 uh, you know, to buy it and they're going to get a buck of that. So maybe I should do it now instead of in a year and make sure it happens. I, I hope a lot of people thought that. <laughs> we definitely appreciate that. Yes. Well, no, I hope, I hope a lot of people came up with that. I think, I mean, that's the, the joy of Kickstarter that you're helping to cause something to come into existence. You guys have done all the hard work. You're actually going to do it. All I have to do is give you $20 or $50 or whatever, and you're going to do it. I don't have to do the work, but I get the benefit of it. There's something kind of nice on that side of the equation also is I can enable you. But, but again, my role is just to bask in the glory of having given $20 towards this project.
1: <laughs> I think that's one of the great things about Kickstarter is that everybody who donates can, can kind of, uh, you know, take their, their claim of the victory. I like that. Yeah, I think that's important. I think that's one of the things that's uh, keeping it uh, one of the more popular ways to finance art projects in general.
0: Well, it certainly changed things for a lot of people. I keep hearing that. In and in again, this XOXO conference, there were so many people as attendees, not just on stage, talking about what they've done, where Kickstarter was the thing that enabled them to make the big change in their life. You know and for you guys, I realize this is the start you 've got to still you know you 've got the money to do the first stage, but you 're going and you 'll be able to prove A, you 've shown that people will give you money when you go to raise money. The fact that people have already given you money is a great way to raise money it turns out
1: yeah i 've actually heard the best way to get a grant is to have somebody else give you a grant
0: <laughs> you could have the artificial grant making association that would give uh, uh, fake grants to people for, no, but it's, but, but it is that. It's that you've proven you're successful. You've proven you can go out and just say, we want money for this thing. And people will give you $118,000. That's kind of an amazing thing to go out with and say. And we have, by the way, we have the participation of the subject who is given exclusive access for the first time. It seems like a really interesting pitch to then go and say, you know, the next stage for the rest of the money you need to, to bring in to, to get to completion. Uh, that you've got this great pitch.
1: Oh yeah, and we can go to anybody else for uh, for further financing, saying we already have a built-in fan base. Look at how many people mm-hmm. donated. You know, I mean, even if they donated a dollar, they uh, they showed up and had their name counted.
0: I saw this with Linotype, the film. I was a backer. I was I was. I have to say, I'm obliged. This is an in joke. I'm sorry. This is uh, on the podcast. I mention every podcast. I think I was trained as a typesetter. This is true. I'm not that old, but I was trained as a typesetter. And when Linotype the movie was being uh, funded, I funded. I backed both of the uh, Kickstarters for it. When it came to town, I went and bought a ticket and I went to see it in person because I hadn't released the DVD yet. I even, I gave money to help bring it to town even because I wanted people to see it. So they even had like a micro fundraiser to get it in the door in Seattle. And the place was totally full. And I was delighted to be part of that. But so I paid once I paid twice. I paid a ticket price and I helped bring it to Seattle. I mean very small amount, but help bring it to Seattle. Seems to me you're gonna have a lot of people. Your backers are gonna be telling people when you do it if you do a tour with the film like the indie game folks did or Linotype, you're gonna have people who are like, they're gonna bring twenty friends to this thing. They're gonna force them to come and buy tickets and fill your houses too.
1: Oh well, that's what we're hoping, yeah. Uh we hope for for every person that backed, there's probably ten people that couldn't afford it to or or uh uh forgot between paychecks or you know any number don't trust kickstarter any number of reasons why there's people who who did not uh give money and um yeah it's to to me it shows that uh Like I said, for for each one person that donated, there's probably 10 fans behind it who are going to give us support in other ways.
0: And I would say don't underestimate that 12,000 Facebook shares. 12,000 people thought enough of this campaign to share it and only 1,800 or so backed it, which means there are 12,000 people who thought this is a cool idea. And then the next thing is, hey, the film is out. The, the indie game folks, I mean, they wound up booking their own theaters and touring around rather than going to distribution. And that paid huge dividends because they were able to go everywhere. They got another base of fans and they sold a deluxe edition the next year. That's what I just got as they finished the sort of final stage. It seems like you can develop a fan base even before the film is released
1: we absolutely have. And, and we talk to our fans all the time on Facebook and Twitter, regardless of whether they donated. So, you know, we, we are building a community and we're, we're trying to keep everybody updated on everything too, which is, uh, maybe one of the more hair raising parts of the whole thing is, uh, doing doing a showbiz documentary. You know, if you were doing a documentary about the, a new miracle drug, for example, you might go and get the greatest doctors and scientists and some patients. And, and that's what you build your, your film on. But, uh, for us, you know, th- th- those doctors and scientists don't have agents and managers, and so there, there's a lot that is really going on right now that we're really excited about that we just can't talk about because the contract <laughs> hasn't been signed yet, <laughs> you know, things like that. But we, we do keep a a strong effort to to keep everybody posted and to really keep that community feel as much as possible. Devin, if people want more
0: information about the project, where do they go to find it?
1: Well, you can always look us up at uh, smogberrytrees.com. That's our official website. And uh, you can always find us on Facebook by searching Under the Smogberry Trees. We have a a fan page there that
0: I post to just about every day and uh, Twitter uh, at Smogberry Trees. That's great. And people can watch a little bit of a video that you created for the Kickstarter as well.
1: Yes, we have a, a trailer there built on some of the archival footage that we have already pulled together on Dr. Demento.
0: It's exciting and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. This is the, you know, the the anticipation is sometimes as sweet as the reward, I think. And, and the idea that this is coming along and, and you're, you're moving towards it is, uh, is exciting to me as, uh, as an old Dementite and, uh, pleasure to talk to you about this. And, uh, so we've been talking about, uh, you're the, you're directing the film, working with your partners, Christine McDonald and Scott McKenzie, who are the executive producers. That means you have to do all the work and they write the checks, right?
1: (laughs) uh, (laughs) Yeah. No, I'll actually wear about a hundred <laughs> different hats.
0: <laughs> I have to have a title. Someone has to be the somebody has to be the dictator, though, right? Or or does any or do you all work together collaboratively enough that no one has to be the dictator?
1: Nobody is the dictator. That's that's one of the great things that's about great. our group. Uh, we, we wear many hats. We get along together very well. We've all known each other for uh, the three of us have all known each other for over a decade. So we're we're good friends on top of everything else and we've added three new people to our crew and they're all wearing a million hats so
0: it's really a a community thing from the ground up this is great well i'll just ask you and and hope that you stay demented Devin. oh always you stay demented too glenn The New Disruptors has a new home. Find us at newdisrupt.org. You can find our new podcast feed, leave comments on individual podcasts, or send feedback. We release a new episode every Thursday. Would you like to sponsor this show? We'd be glad to have you. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G.com for more details. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.